This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. We used to say that the boat is just a magic carpet that lets us own the world. And people say, oh, how did you live in a boat that small? Well, we didn't really feel we lived in the boat. We lived on the boat, of course, but it opened up this huge world for us. So the boat was a way of getting there. Now, I, I know it sounds funny when I say I've never liked living aboard. I like going places. So... The boat was a platform rather than just a home. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. Many of us want to get into the liveaboard sailing lifestyle to get out of the 9-to-5 cycle and to see the world and to live a non-conventional life. It feels like this is a relatively recent trend, and if you look at YouTube, it looks like maybe it's the millennial thing to do. But it's not really that, is it? Because there were people who wanted to chase their dreams long before the millennial generation was even born, and those who did follow the adventure. Today, I'm talking with one of those people, Lynn Party. Lynn and Larry Party sailed the world's oceans for over four decades, and there is a documentary coming out on the 14th of October called The Real Deal that is a tribute to Larry's life and a wonderful look at the decades of sailing. There is a link in the description if you want to check that one out. 
Lynn and I talk about some of their adventures around the world, and we also talk about Lynn's decision to keep sailing and what kind of sailing adventure she's doing now. Now here is a true sailing legend, Lynn Party. So you and Larry were sometimes referred to as America's first couple of cruising, but your boats always sailed under the red and white maple leaf flag as Larry was actually Canadian. And I'm curious, did you get to spend a lot of time in Canada at all? We had some wonderful times voyaging in Canada. Larry, of course, grew up in the Okanagan Valley outside of Vancouver and learned to sail in the Gulf Islands. He always told me about how wonderful the sailing was up there. So when we had been voyaging on our little seraphim for 11 years, we sailed from Japan to Victoria, 49 days at sea, and I wrote uh, the first edition of the Karen Feeding while I was on that passage just to keep me from going crazy. It kept me well occupied. But we uh, spent a whole year in uh, the waters of Vancouver that time on uh, Seraphin and had a wonderful time. The Gulf Islands are really, they're beautiful, they're friendly. There's all sorts of interesting little nooks and crannies to discover. And we kept running into old friends of Larry's because he did a lot of serious racing there. But uh, then we did the ended up having the same scene with Tallison towards the end of her voyaging. After we've been cruising for over 20 years on her, we sailed from Chile to Canada, which is was quite an amazing voyage. We sailed from Chile straight through to um, Nukahiva. 31-day passage, and then had the most gorgeous passage from there to Hawaii, from Nukahiva, straight across with the tr- and caught the trades on the north end, and then up to Vancouver, or actually Victoria. And this time we spent th- two and a half years keeping the boat in the uh, Victoria Harbor during the winter, putting her and living it. We lived in a little boathouse in Victoria Harbor with the boat tied to the boathouse, which was just a great way to get some time in the winter to write a book, get to know people. And uh, Victoria is a really special spot. But what I really loved is we sailed up to Desolation Sound and explored the waters of Desolation Sound. And uh, not the easiest sailing I've ever done because without an engine, it was sometimes took a bit of patience waiting and and uh, But we always got where we were going. Spent a few nights out just waiting for the wind to fill in. And the, usually at about 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd get a nice little sea breeze come off the land. And then you hope the current wasn't running too fast <laughs> to keep you from getting where you're going. But we always got there. So we had an excellent time. But we did have to watch out for deadheads. That's one of the problems are the logs that get loose and are floating just below the surface. Yeah, they are scary. The the little sailing that I have done, I've done in off the coast of British Columbia, and it is yeah. absolutely stunning. But my goodness, are the logs scary? <laughs> they are definitely out there, especially for going at night. Uh, and like you were without an engine as well. So you can imagine that was a whole different uh, situation at that time with that kind of boat. Yeah, well, the other thing is the the log booms, sometimes you'd see a tugboat go by and you'd look and the log booms almost a half mile behind them. And, uh, you know, we 
trying to get across their track, uh, you had to be patient and be very aware. On the other hand, everybody was friendly, good places to anchor, great wooden boat festival in Vancouver Harbor and in Victoria that we enjoyed a lot. Yeah, Victoria for sure is such a lovely spot. And I know exactly the spot that, that you mentioned where you would have a little houseboat and a, and a boat next to it. So <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, that was really nice. <laughs> well, again, I know that like you just mentioned, your sailing adventures took you to so many different countries around the world. I mean, you sailed around the world twice, so no wonder. But just for purely selfish reasons, I have to ask, since I am from Finland and I have not had the chance to talk to anyone who's actually sailed in the Baltic Sea uh, or Finland yet. So I'm wondering if you have any memories or anything that stands out from the Baltic Sea area. The Baltic Sea was a real treat. You know, there's so many islands. I mean, from in the, on the Swedish coast, there's only 20,000 islands. And on Finland, there's 30,000 islands. But my funniest, most wonderful memory, when we sailed up there, we were on surf in our little boat, 24-footer. And, of course, at that time, there was lots and lots of Swedes and Finns sailing around in folk boats and spit scatters and small boats like ours. And many of them were engine-free because there's not a lot of currents up there. It didn't worry people much. But uh, we decided to sail between the Swedish islands and Finland to get up to uh, the Åland Islands, A-L-A-N-D. I'm never sure how to pronounce that. And uh, when we left the Swedish islands, it was the midnight sun. It was never got really dark. But, you know, it got dusk-like and it got not quite dark. But we're sailing along and we kept watching for the lighthouse on the um, in the Finnish archipelago to guide us between which island. I mean, there's so many islands that even, and we're in the days of using paper charts and uh, we just couldn't find the lighthouse we were looking for. And when it became just a bit lighter and we still weren't comfortable, we felt we were kind of lost. A patrol boat came by and so we waved to them, and they came over, and they said, what's wrong? And we said, uh, well, we're trying to sail into the island group, up to Marion home, and uh, we can't find the White House. And the man says, well, of course you can't find the White House. It's not dark enough to use them, so we give the lighthouse keepers the month off. <laughs> So they pointed it out, and with our binoculars, we could just see the structure of the little lighthouse up there. So. <laughs> that sounds exactly like the Finnish vacation. The whole country is such down in July and August, and if you want to get anything done, don't even dream about it. So <laughs> not even the yeah. lighthouse keepers are there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, when we got into this beautiful harbor where there's a fantastic uh, square-rigged ship and a museum, Sumi Janssen, you know, the Finnish swan, one of the last of the uh, P-liners, I went to the tourist office. I immediately go to a tourist office and see what's happening that might be interesting. And it turned out that there was a world folk dance festival, a European folk dance festival going on in Kaustinen, which was up near the Arctic Circle. Well, we read about it and I said, oh, that looks like fun. And they had a, and it showed that you could get, we talked to the lady and she says, 
oh, there, you can get accommodations. All the local farmers take people in. And it was equivalent to about $5 a day at night to stay in a farm. They said it's everyone bunks down with the farm family. So, oh, good. So uh, how do we get there? She said, oh, you walk over to the airport and get on a plane. I said, but where do we buy tickets? She said, on the plane. I said, well, isn't there a ticket? Can't we book? She says, no. She says, here, the roads up there are so difficult to maintain that they, we all just fly. And it's just like a bus. <laughs> so, so we flew up to Kostanen, and we were the only foreigners that, that spoke English. I mean, everyone else was local and European. It was a very local festival. And got off the plane and went to this school where the main field was, where the music was. And uh, the people there just called over to a friend and said, they're staying with you. And we went home and there was about 12 people and they set their barn up to just with nice bunks for everybody and the sauna and uh, just as friendly as can be. And uh, it, I've never been to a friendlier festival with better music, just fantastic. And uh, in fact, we ended up meeting some people there who just said, come on, travel with us. We traveled around Finland for the next three weeks with Various people we met at the festival, including a man who at that time was amazing, accordion player called Shastamoinen, who uh, was a very well-known blacksmith uh, folk singer. So we went home with him. But just Finland, very special memories. Wow, that is, uh, I did not expect to hear that because uh, Kaustinen is uh, quite close to where I grew up. And uh, yeah, I remember going to that festival many times with my parents, uh, who were very into folk dancing. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. the festival is still going on; it's still happening every year. So it's it's wonderful to hear that there's that kind of a, a random history there. Because for anyone who's listening, this town we're talking about is about 700 kilometers north of Helsinki and that sort of archipelago area. So it, it's not exactly near where you would get to on your sailboat. It is also inland, so you could not sail there. So you obviously then left your boat, a boat somewhere south. Um, and I'm curious, I know a lot of um, the sailboats in that area tend to be a little bit smaller than your, say, modern-day cruisers are. So they probably are about that 30 feet. So your boat probably at 24 feet fit right into that sort of... Uh, seen in the sailing area there but i'm wondering in all your times traveling across the oceans did your boats ever feel too small for you never we used to say that the boat is just a magic carpet that lets us own the world and people say oh how did you live in a boat that small well we didn't really feel we lived in the boat we lived on the boat of course but it opened up this huge world for us. So the boat was a way of getting there. Now, I I know it sounds funny. When I say I've never liked living aboard, I like going places. And just to have a boat and just live on it in a marina for more than a, you know, six weeks while you got ready to go somewhere, that's not my cup of tea. So the boat was a platform rather than just a home. And sure, there were times when like 49 days crossing the North Atlantic, North Pacific, we were confined to that space, but it was taking us to a new world. It never made us feel we had everything we needed. Uh, We learned, we did learn to give each other privacy. That was one of the things that was an important part of living on a small boat. And we learned to have some really special things with us 
that made her made us feel like we weren't giving up anything. We were just gaming. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point of view. And of course, boat is a vessel and and a means of traveling. And like you just shared in that Finland example, you spent three weeks traveling around the country. So you certainly spend a lot of time off the boat. And of course, you are known for spending uh, your time and and taking it slowly uh, and not rushing it, which is a great way. Yeah, well, we had to decide very early on Okay, the reason we chose a 24-foot boat, Larry wanted to build the boat, he wanted to own it, and it was what he could afford and dream of finishing. Once we had the boat, we found it's all we needed, and we never would have built a bigger boat, except we wanted to build something after many, I think it was nine years into our cruising, we decided that we missed having a project. We wanted to change our life for a while because we've been wandering around And Larry had some ideas he wanted to try out in building a new boat. So we decided to build a big boat. And so we built a 29-footer, 29-foot, 6-inch. So the size of the boat was small. But the other real advantage to us is about six months into our first cruise, somebody offered us to come up to their home in Mexico City with them, some people we met in Mexico. And we looked at it and said, my gosh, what are we going to do with the boat? Mexico's a dangerous place. Turns out there's some places dangerous, some places that aren't, like everywhere. But we looked at each other and said, you know, right now we have to make a major decision. We've got to decide who owns whom. Do we own the boat or does it own us? And this is a major thing. Well, because the boat was small, we were able to sneak her into a little tiny corner of a marina where a big boat wouldn't have fit. And so we found it really easy. It was easy to put her away. It was easy to get a mooring we could trust or set our own mooring. A 50-footer, you got a different problem. So by having this small boat, we really felt we owned it and we could find places to put her that were affordable and safe for her. And that was the same on Taliesin. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Who owns who? Because certainly... That is a question that comes up, like, if you want to go explore, I don't know, Guatemala, because you're spending a winter there, are you okay to leave the boat there or not? Who knows? So that is a very interesting take on that. And, of course, you are known for the legendary saying of, go small, go simple, go now. So does that still hold true for you? We still meet many young people who are getting out there on their small boats and having a blast, really are. And right now I'm uh, sailing with a, because Larry's left this world and uh, left me with a great appetite for more sailing. Uh, I met a nice gentleman, a wonderful gentleman named David, uh, an Australian sailor. I never knew I'd get involved with an Australian. I was just a joke. I didn't like their accent. <laughs> I still tease him. Uh, but he uh, sailed into my life at the end of a 12-year circumnavigation he was on. And he's got a 40-footer, 12 meters. And there's times that I think it's too bloody big. It's, an, it's, a, it's a great boat for going places. And, uh, but the idea that I can't clean out every locker in that boat in two days. And uh, we did, we're doing a major refit of the boat. And uh, I used to be able to literally scrub Taliesin out from end to end over a two-day period, empty every single locker and know it was in every single corner. Not the same. 40 feet becomes a big boat. 
Yeah, I mean, it is wider, it's longer. And of course, with the more modern boat, that's not, you know, something that you literally built, you have to find things and where they are and, and where you keep them and all that. So yeah, that must be a really um, different experience. But I'm curious about the wooden boats that you sailed on. Since you, you know, you, you built them, so you got to choose what you put in and what you leave out. And then famously, you left out the engines. But I'm I'm curious what qualities or features were the important ones for those boats that you built that were to take you around the world. Um, we both came from. Well, I was not a sailor till I met Larry, but from the time I met him, he was a professional racing sailor when we met. He got paid to help people make their boats go faster because he'd done very well racing sailboats, and he just under he knew how to make a boat move. To both of us, it started with sailing ability, a boat that really sailed easily in light winds, uh, because we really, in a way, we're quite, probably quite different than a lot of sailors. We went cruising to go sailing, just the sheer joy of sailing a boat. And wherever we went, the first thing we did is we found out if they had any local racing going on. Towson was not what you would call a racing boat, but boy, we could beat other boats in light winds and we sometimes a little too competitive I think but it was a way of meeting people immediately so we used to say that we were lucky because not only did the boat provide us a home a means of crossing oceans you know an adventure machine but it was a toy that we could take out and play with and meet people it was a great way of meeting people so the quality that mattered to us first was that sailing ability Second was the ability to heave to, to wait out a storm. This was very important. And third, a boat that we could take care of ourselves. And because neither of us is the least bit uh, electronically skilled, we kept the electronics utterly simple. Larry was a trained diesel mechanic, which we don't brag about. because, you know, But... He's, you know, he worked in the logging trucks because he came from a logging area and he was a, had you know studied how to take care of big diesel engines, but he didn't enjoy doing that. So the, what did we want? Very comfortable bunk, really good sea bunks, the sailing ability, the ability to fix and get to gear that might need fixing, like access to the rudders, gudgeons and pintles, access to the rigging. So that's, the, that's the, where we came from. Yeah, that sounds really good. And it's those are really good things to keep in mind. Because of course, once you start looking at these more modern boats that have dishwashers and washing machines, and, and all that, you get a little carried away there, like, oh, wouldn't that be nice to have AC and uh, all these modern gadgets, but then do they actually make the experience better or worse? What people don't quite realize is we are so spoiled in a home. We are used to the city providing us the water. We're used to the electric company providing the electricity. We're used to all these different services coming from outside providers who take care of them if something goes wrong. And we're also used to going to the store and buying a refrigerator that's been tested by three million other people. The average marine refrigeration system, they make maybe a thousand a year, not three million or five million or 10 million. So they're not as well tested and they're in a much rougher environment. 
So we looked at it, and, you know, we've often written, if we can't fix it, should we have it on board? Well, now I'm on this boat that is a more complicated boat. David's boat is, uh, it has a nice big diesel engine. Uh, it has foot pumps for water, but it also has electric pumps in the galley. But it's still on a simple side. It really is. And like, it doesn't have hot water. And people say, oh, you could just add a hot water, this or that, real easy. David agrees, and we're very comfortable. There's a thing called a kettle. <laughs> you know, you heat some water up in a kettle if you want hot water. And we have a shower pump system that allows us to have hot showers without the extra plumbing, the extra complication. And it keeps that engine room simpler and cuts down wear and tear. Uh, so that's our choices. That I'm fortunate in that David's more complex boat is still on the simple side because there's enough problems with it already. Well, that's the thing. I follow a lot of people on YouTube and online in general. And of course, a lot of the time is spent on fixing, fixing things that break the autopilot or the engine or the water maker. But there is certain beauty in that simplicity. If you never had those things to begin with, you could still sail, it could still be a great experience, and you wouldn't have to worry about any of this. Well, I, I get uh, annoyed when I hear people say that cruising is fixing your boat in a series of exotic ports. Well, we never were held up for parts. And the only time we fixed our boat was during the two-week haul-out once a year. If anything needed fixing, it got done then. Now, it doesn't mean we didn't maintain the boat during the year. We used to always have a little list of things that everything from touching up a spot of varnish that got scratched to putting a new seizing on a bit of the rigging. And we used to say, okay, every day we do one little thing. And it might be just getting the rigging kit out and putting a little patch where it was a little bit of chafe on a sail. But never, ever did we get stomped where we had to take special time out because something broke. And we never had a gear failure at sea in 47 years of voyaging, 200 and many thousand miles of voyaging. We once broke a spinnaker halyard at sea. Wow, that is quite impressive indeed. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing to keep in mind. If you take care of the boat, the boat will take care of you and keep it simple. Yeah, and inspect it. Inspected. And if I can go off on a little bug of air since we're chatting, people talk about night watches and you know, staying down below and staying in the cockpit, not getting out of the cockpit, and uh, having a good book on their podcasts, you know, listening to podcasts. And although we would read a book at sea, one of the things that I think really helped, and the, the late Sir Peter Blake was a very well known New Zealand sailor. We talked about this a lot when we used, when we were together. Night watches are when you do your inspections. Every night watch, at the beginning of each watch, we got whoever was on, going on watch, went out with a flashlight, walked around the whole boat, and then checked to see if everything was right. Look, and we looked at the, to make sure there's no chafe on the sheets. Everything was tight and tidy. And before we handed over, we took another walk around the boat. And that's out of the cockpit, look at the whole boat. And it does pay you spot little things and you get to know the boat. So it's a different attitude. And that's, like I say, it contributed to having very, very little problems that needed fixing at sea. 
Yeah, of course, it is a good mindset and good practice because, of course, just by Murphy's law, if something's going to go wrong, it's going to happen at nighttime. So if you if you start doing that as a practice, that could certainly eliminate at least some of the issues that might arise. The other thing that was good about that is by getting out of the cockpit and taking a good look around, you start to feel the weather and you could actually tell when change was happening. You, the, the humidity changes, the motion of the boat changes. You're watching the horizon. And I will say, now that I'm sailing with David, he has a dodger and uh, clears around the cockpit that can come down. And I feel cut off from that contact with the weather. And uh, I've actually, the last, we've sailed around, just sailed across the Tasman and around Tasmania and back up here. And so we've got quite a bit of sea time until we got stuck with COVID for the last, it's almost a year now that we haven't been able to go offshore long distance. Uh, I started getting back out of the cockpit every at every watch just to get back that feeling that you just feel it on your skin even. It's nice to be part of the elements. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've uh, talked about, you know, that you are still sailing and you, there's a new boat and you're sailing with a new partner. And I wanted to ask you, since you spent the majority of your life and decade sailing with Larry, and eventually it came to that that Larry could not continue sailing, but you decided to keep sailing. And I'm wondering if you would like to talk about that a little bit. What was that decision like to d- decide to keep going by yourself and now with David, of course? Um, it's funny, Larry developed Parkinson's um, that became Parkinsonian dementia after we'd been together for 44 years. We still sailed on because the boat was one I could handle and help him so that it, we sailed for about four years after he was having trouble walking. And But uh, towards that time, he said to me, Lynn, because we have a little home that we fixed up in New Zealand, a home base, let's say. He says, Lynn, I don't want you to be without a boat when I when we're not sailing together. And he actually, for my 65th birthday, bought me a little uh, 15-foot keel boat. It looks just like a it looks like a great big boat, but it's really small, so that I could just go out any time while I was taking. Because he knew I had to take care of him, and uh, so I could go out sailing any time I wanted. And I used to go out just to have time on the water, just for an afternoon. So I sailing was something I it's part of me, part of my life. The hardest thing was that when Larry had to go into full-time care, I started being invited by other people to go for a sail here or there. And 
I had to make a very difficult decision, which was if I go away, I'm not going to be able to go and see Larry every day or every week. Or, But as he was having harder and harder time knowing who I was, I said, I'm 72. or I'm over 70, I think, at that time. People are going to, some people are going to criticize me, but Larry wouldn't because he made it very clear that uh, at, when we had very various chats about with you know, people who were going through a similar thing. He says, you've got to live and keep living. And uh, so when I met David and uh, we didn't, it wasn't about romance. We just happened to meet because he asked, he sailed uh, into New Zealand uh, towards the end of his circumnavigation and a friend and he started chatting and friend said, have you met Lynn? Cause I see you've got her book up there on the shelf. And he said, no, why? And she says, oh, she just lives in the next bay. And uh, you ought to go and have her sign your book. And uh, long story short, my friend brought David over. And we started chatting and laughing and had a lot of fun. He's a very different human being than Larry. He's thoroughly impractical as far as building things. He learned, you know, he does the best he can, but he's not a builder. He's a barrister and solicitor and environmental specialist in world heritage law. And... Uh, as he said, very skilled pencil pusher, but uh, he loves sailing, loves going places. And he said, look, I always take friends sailing with me. I'm going out to the barrier, which is an island offshore here, about 40 miles. If you want to pop over there with me, just, you know, he showed me the forward cabins completely separate. And uh, I thought to myself, well, that'd be nice. Didn't think about it. Six months later, he calls his, uh, want to go for a sail. Well, it was just a natural thing because... I felt like I'd come home. I was back on the water. Uh, the joke was I didn't like the boat. You know, it wasn't the boat I would have chosen for me. It's a steel boat. I'm not used to taking care of steel. And I find that uh, it has advantages and disadvantages. When, when, we, when we were hit by a 200-foot ship, when we were at anchor in Suva Harbor and dragged, broke our ground tackle and dragged us into the shallows and pounded on the boat, Long story short, the boat fortunately broke free and the ship went aground before we did. But it just broke the wooden rails. There's not even a dent on the hull. I mean, this is, <laughs> I think a wooden boat would have been shattered by the experience. <laughs> but you don't build boats to get hit by ships. <laughs> so, yes, it was it a hard decision? Only that emotional thing of abandoning what used to be the most wonderful man in the world but no longer was. And I've spoken to a lot of other people since then who are trying to make that difficult decision. And uh, all I can say is my friends and family were unbelievably supportive and Larry's family was completely supportive of my decision. And that helped. Of course. And it only makes sense. I can't see any other outcome for that, but it is a very interesting topic to talk about because there are a lot of people out there sailing of all ages, and I'm sure you're not the only one who's had to think about this. So it's, it's really good to talk about it and share your experience. And I am so glad to hear that you are still sailing, even though now on a very different boat, steel boat, 40 feet, much different from your previous boats. But I'm curious also, I think I read somewhere that you had said when you started sailing, it was sort of the possibility and opportunity to meet people and see the world that 
pulled you into sailing. And I'm wondering if that is still true for you. Is that what still pulls you into sailing or has that changed over the years? Well, that's the reason you go. The pe- people are the bonus of cruising. That's what I've always said. And uh, it's just not only just the, it's the people, the opportunities. We keep uh, still keep meeting really interesting people. One of the things that I know from speaking with David, now remember, as I said, David sailed for 12 years around the world, although um, he he tells me amazing stories about uh, his sailing times. And I've he, he went on several rallies, which he enjoyed a lot. I've never been a rally person. But boy, had, did he make good friends from there. We keep running into his rally friends in various places, and they're still in close touch. But he did say that it's so different now that the two of us are cruising together because he was single-handed and he used to get crew to go across oceans with him with the, by his daughters going on Facebook and saying, my dad's doing this, would you like to? And they found, or going to backpackers hostels around the world. He always found crew to go across oceans. And I think he had 14 or 16 different crew and we're in touch with 10 of them all the time. Because they still, they just enjoyed it so much being with him. But what he did say is, because now that the two of us are sailing together, he says, we meet a lot more people. More people join us or come to dinner and take us to their home because we're a couple. It's, uh, there's, I think, less threatening than a single person, maybe, or more welcoming than a single person. Who knows exactly why? So we do a lot of entertaining and of uh, keep meeting. And it just, yes, it's all about the people. But uh, my life has been constantly changing, and David really enjoys that. Uh, as you know, um, I've been helping this young filmmaker make a film about Larry. That has been fascinating, you know, seeing how he does his research and going over the problems and reworking little sections and showing him, you know. Uh, and uh, so this, you know, documentary about Larry has been a really exciting project for me the last few months because I've unfortunately had uh, an accident and broke my leg and was in and out of hospital for three months, but uh, now improving. But also I've been working with the the video maker who, the video people who have been taking care of the videos that Larry and I made previously said, you know, why don't you get David to talk about how you get cruising when you're a person who wants to retire, you know, because there's a lot of people. When David was 60, he was tired of being a university law lecturer for 20 years and tired of fighting environmental battles against the Australian government and uh, protecting the Great Barrier Reef. And he said, I got to get out there and go sailing. So how does a 60-year-old all of a sudden make the hard decisions? So we've been spending a lot of the last year and a half making a video of David's experience. And David had never, ever seen how you get the footage to make an interesting video. And he says, I'm an absolute tyrant when I get a camera in front of my face. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see myself as a tyrant. I'm just trying to get the shot I want. (laughs) So these are all these things that have come into my life because of cruising. It's the people, the experiences, all the different opportunities that happen. Yeah, it's certainly an activity or a lifestyle that opens a lot more doors than your 
normal stay-at-home, <laughs> stay-in-your-apartment kind of lifestyle. And, and that's part of the reason why I'm so attracted to as well. I want to go live and do something with my life and, and just talking to people like yourself. It's so inspiring to hear like, yes, I could also be out there doing things and instead I was just thinking about doing things. And the documentary, which is out on October 14th, is a wonderful look at the decades of sailing. And if that isn't motivation to keep going, I don't know what is. But very interesting to hear about the new project that David is involved in, because I now that I'm thinking about it, I think that, you know, starting the cruising live as a 30-something, like, oh gosh, this is, this is a lot of work to get things sorted out. But uh, in another 30 years, it might be even more difficult, because then you have your established life and a career and house and everything. That is a very interesting take. And I think, from what I understand, most cruisers out there are retired. That's still the goal to start when you are retired. So that will be an interesting project to see for sure. Yeah, but what's exciting for me is uh, I'm seeing a lot of younger people and young people with family getting out and trying. And uh, there's a lot of them who are doing, you know, there's quite a few who are trying to cover their costs by uh, doing videos, bloody hard work. Yeah, it's not cruising as I knew it, that's for sure. Uh, I've had the pleasure of doing a little bit of mentoring and help, helping a couple of uh, these uh, video bloggers. And uh, a couple years ago, I was I had a special, I did an all-day seminar on writing and blogging for sailing. And uh, some of them came and helped, told people about their work and one couple was uh, Desiree and Jordan from a book called Atticus, Sailing Atticus. And when they explained how much work they put into this, that they sail and video for eight to ten days, and then they sit down in an editing suite for six days solid, and they do that every week, week in and week out, that's really hard. And I admire people who know how to do that and can do it. And I realized how fortunate we were to that Larry was a very skilled boat builder, rigger. He taught me to be his apprentice. and I did the finish work. And uh, then later my writing kicked in. But we only worked three months in the year. And that was, we used to say that if we couldn't earn enough money working three months, both of us, and sometimes 12 hours a day for six days a week, if we couldn't earn enough during that time, we were either spending too much money or not working hard enough. But we said, that's it. We've got this little box of money. We used to keep our money. This will make you really laugh in today's digital world. We used to have a box shaped the same shape as $20 bills, you know, American cash. And in the box, a third of the way up, there was a hole about the size of a thumb, you know, about a three-quarter inch hole. And it was about three-quarters of an inch off the bottom of the box. We used to put our money, whenever we worked, we put turn our money into $20 bills, keep it in the hidden place on the boat. If we could see nothing but money through the hole, we just lived enjoyably, didn't worry about what we spent because, yeah, we tend to be 50 people, not. But, we, you know, we'd go out for dinner, have good old time. When we started to see air through that hole, we used to cut back our expenses and start thinking about what work was ahead or get settle in, do some extra writing or when we couldn't see any money through that hole, we cut back 
to starving the Josephs. We found work. That was it. So that was our box accounting system. <laughs> that is delightfully simple. I love that. But what kind of work would you go and do then, out and about when you're literally in in any random country around the world? That when that would happen? Well, quite. A, we would start letting people know that we were available to deliver yachts. So we would deliver boats.、Um, In sometimes we were in countries where there was no problem at all with work permits. In England,、uh, the shipyard owner Larry went and talked to various shipyard owners, and they all of them wanted to hire him because he had skills. And they just went to the local employment people and just arranged for him to work for contract.、Uh, in other places,、uh, we would sign on as crew on someone else's boat and repair their boat. Because、uh, in many places there just weren't riggers available, so I remember re-rigging a 120-ton catch, and I was, you know, we were up and down the mass of that bloody thing so many times. It was windy too; it wasn't fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, so then my writing kicked in after about seven years of cruising, and that took for the first five or six years of my writing that was only covered maybe half of our expenses. And Larry started writing too, but、uh, whatever came along.、Uh, We did some survey work for the Colombian government. Of all strange things, they wanted to be—they got their tourism department wanted to start advertising that their little excursion boats were up to U.S. Coast Guard standards, so they could say they were real good. And they located to us through the club, and we said, "Well, we can—we're not licensed surveyors, but we can tell you how you stand." And、uh, Larry went on the first boat and came back to me and said, "Then the first thing I told them, they've got to put wire over all those rocks and the builds that they're using for ballast, and they can't even call it safe." <laughs> so they gave them some work plans to get them on the way. So yeah, you know, whatever came up, we were pretty.、Uh, you know, I worked as a, you know, helped at a bar for a bit, but that was I'm not very good at that. That's one thing. I'm not a waitress of any sort. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I think the funniest other one was.、Uh, I end up being the cook for a racing team in Italy. There was Larry was racing on a three-quarter tonner, and the Americans needed their food prepared. So I made them up a bunch of lunches one day, and pretty soon I was on board Seraphin cooking for three different boats and being paid to prepare their meals. So whatever, whatever, whatever came along, I love that. Mentality, like don't worry about it too much. Don't plan years in advance. Just go and. Figure it out. Well, I know better than to ask a sailor about their plans, but I am curious: what is going on in your life now, sailing-wise? Well, right now, I hope to have the boat ready to sail in about two months because we've ripped the whole interior out of it.、Uh, well, not not the whole interior, two thirds of the interior, and it's going back in, starting to go back in.、Uh, we, because of COVID and New Zealand restrictions, will confine our cruising this year. To going up to the north of New Zealand and exploring a lot of the little bays along there, and out to a place called the Mercury Islands. Because four years ago we sailed right around New Zealand down to fjords, and it was absolutely beautiful, amazing. The south of New Zealand's gorgeous. But if all goes well, and because we got to admit that approaching the end of the 70s, there's a time factor, we would love to ship the boat to Europe. And then cruise back from there. Spend some time seeing the waters. I have an adopted son who lives in the south of England, and he has a little shipyard. So he says, "You just send it here. I'll take care of it till you get here."
So, and you can, you know, spend a winter or two there. So that would be a way of going back to a few of the places we both love. David absolutely loved Norway and the uh, Lofoten Islands. I enjoyed the Baltic tremendously. And I'd like to go to Paris on the boat and just be in Paris for a bit. But it all depends on COVID, unfortunately. Yeah, that is true, of course. But wow, what a plan or a goal, shall we say. Yeah, a goal. It's a goal. But Larry and I used to never, always tell people, never tell people what you're going to do. Because if things don't work out, they can say, oh, you failed. I mean, if you say, I'm, if you say, I'm going to sail around the world, and then you just sailed halfway and ran out of money or time or got another plan, people would say, oh, you failed. But if instead you said, I'm heading west, and you headed west for two years, not a great time, you were success all the time. So I really, I'm just saying it would be wonderful if we could do this. If not, there's some great sailing right here. That is true, yes. New Zealand, from what I gather, at least it looks like an amazing sailing destination. I've never been, but it looks fantastic. Yeah, and we've got uh, Tonga and Fiji just to the north of us. It's just, yeah. And David's got all you know so many friends over in Australia. I would not mind going back over to the Great Barrier Reef. And Tasmania is not so bad. Not so bad. Yeah, you have quite a selection of amazing places, right? Almost yeah. around the corner from where you are. So that is a very lucky That's position right. to be in. That's right. <laughs> well, you have so much advice and inspiration to give. And I'm wondering where can people go and follow you in the online world since we can't follow you in the real world because of COVID, but uh, in the online world, where can we go learn more from you and what you're up to? Well, I have uh, various places. I have uh, on Facebook just under, I think it's under Party Lynn or Lynn, just put type in Lynn Party. I have a, a page where I have fun putting up a question at least once a week, some kind of thing for people to think about. And uh, and uh, I then post a bit about uh, daily life, like uh, there's a picture on there right now of me sitting on a toilet in a completely unfinished loo area, trying to decide if it's the right height. <laughs> and everybody's giving advice on what's the right height. But uh, I also have a blog uh, that I add interesting things to, not on a real everyday basis, but about once a month, once every two months, called partytime.blogspot.com. And uh, so that's good fun. And uh, it has information about the the real deal, which is uh, Mike Anderson's video he's made of Larry. I think you've actually seen a preview of it. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, so that, and then there's an Instagram page. That's, that's it. I'm hooked in. <laughs> You are everywhere where you should be and where you are easy to find. And yes, the documentary was absolutely wonderful. And it is coming out in October and highly recommend watching that. It is a delightful look at the the years of sailing and destinations and Cape Horn and all these beautiful things. Yeah, we had it's really been enjoyable to work with it. Mike has done it. He obviously loved Larry too, just like I did. Well, after all this, I am almost speechless, which is not a great thing for a podcaster. I am still just so blown away that I get to talk to these extraordinary people and hear about their adventures and share their stories. 
If you do check out the Real Deal documentary, you might be interested to know that the profits will go towards upgrading and maintaining the Larry Party Children's Observatory in New Zealand. And the story of that observatory is explained in the movie as well. Next week, I have something entirely different in store for you as I talk with a young liveaboard couple in California. In the meantime, you can come say hi on Instagram or Facebook, where you will find me as Liverboard Sailing Podcast, and I will see you in the next episode. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.